right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm Timo Sazo. And if you've seen me, seen me here before, it's because I'm a, a pastoral intern. And sometimes I get to preach, like this morning. And today we will be looking at, uh, we will continue our series on the book of Philippians. We will be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So if you have a Bible, please go there. And you can also see the text in the projector. This is God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I have, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that it speaks of what you've done for us and what you call us to do. We pray this morning that you would fill us with your spirit so that we may understand and so that we, we may embrace what your word says, and so that we will put it in practice. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear and respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in the year 2000, a poster was discovered in a bookstore in Onwick, a small market town in the north of England. The poster had a simple design, had a red background, a Tudor crown on the top, and a motivational message below. The poster had been produced by the British government on the eve of World War II with the purpose of raising the morale of the British public as it faced threats of mass air attacks by Germany. Although more than two million copies were printed, the poster was little known until it was discovered more than 60 years later. More copies have been discovered since then, and this poster has, has been reissued, reissued um, by several private companies, and it has become widely recognized around the world. Anyone know what was written on the poster? Keep calm and carrying on. Well, today we find this theme and motto on a variety of products, mugs, t-shirts, and gas posters. And though um, few of us know much or anything at all about its origin, we still associate it with the British way of being, a sort of stoicism, uh, a determination to remain calm, whatever happens. Keep calm and carry on. Well, stoicism is not quite a biblical value. Uh, and the Apostle Paul was not British. 
and she wasn't alive in the late 1930s, but he had a similar message to the Philippians at the end of chapter 1. As we've seen in the last few weeks, Paul writes this letter from prison, likely Rome, where he's been put for his proclamation of the gospel. He writes to the church in Philippi, a church that he had himself founded, to remind this church of his affection for them, of his prayers for them, to thank them for their concern for him, and to encourage them in the faith. And as we saw last week, Paul expects to be released from prison and see the Philippians in person again so that he can continue working for their progress and joy in Christ. But, as we see in the rest of the letter, Paul's expectation of being released from prison fell short of an absolute certainty. He knew he could face a death sentence. So, as a good spiritual father, Paul wants the Philippians to thrive in the faith and remain focused on their mission, whether he comes to them or not. And so he tells them, in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, Whatever happens, whether I come to see you or I'm absent, live in a way that commends the gospel, a life worthy of the gospel. Now, what does living a life worthy of the gospel look like? Well, that's something that Paul will uh, flesh out and come back to in the rest of the letter. Uh, in fact, living a life worthy of the gospel is the main theme, the main point of the book of Philippians. But the main idea that Paul puts forward in our passage this morning is this, that we live a life worthy of the gospel by having unity in the gospel and by having confidence in the gospel. We live a life worthy of the gospel by having unity in the gospel and having confidence in the gospel. So, unity and confidence. So, let's consider these things in turn. Let's start with unity. Look at verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul wants the Philippians to stand firm whether he comes to them or not. And in order to do that they need to be united in the gospel. Or as it's, he says at the end of that verse united in the faith of the gospel. And I think this unity has two aspects that we, that we see here in this passage. First aspect of that unity is a unity of purpose. You see, the Philippine church had come into existence because they heard the message that Paul preached 
the gospel of Christ. They heard of God's mercy and grace for sinners in Jesus Christ. That God has sent His Son into the world. That God's Son, though He was in very nature God, became a man and suffered and died on a cross in the place of sinners. That He had risen again. That sinners receive God's forgiveness and acceptance not on account of their own actions or social status or religious status, but by faith alone in Christ. And having heard this message, the Philippians embraced, they believed, and spreading this message became their mission, their purpose. So Paul is simply reminding them of what they already know is their purpose. Holding fast to the gospel as their faith and proclaiming the gospel so that it becomes the faith of others. Now, earlier in the letter, Paul commended the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel. They, overall, they're one of the best churches that we see in the, in the New Testament. Right? And they knew what they were supposed to do and they were doing it. So why does then Paul feel like he needs to remind them of this one more time? Well, Paul had heard reports that certain problems were brewing in the Philippian congregation. There was envy, rivalry, Selfish ambition, pride, grumbling, maybe even theological or doctrinal, doctrinal errors, sinful passions, and sharp disagreements. And all of these things were undermining their focus on their mission, and therefore their unity in the gospel. If you think about it, those are some of the same issues that can undermine unity in churches today. Even good churches. Even Presbyterian churches. Even PCA churches. Churches can get distracted from their mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world around them because their members are fighting with each other. Now, it's okay for Christians to have convictions, to have open discussions about those convictions with other Christians, and even to disagree with other Christians regarding those convictions. But it's not okay to make those convictions so central that they distract from the mission of the church. And it's not okay to treat brothers and sisters unkindly because we disagree with them. So this is where the second aspect of unity comes to play. And that's the unity of posture. Unity of posture. Now I'm not going to spend a ton of time here um, because upcoming chapters and sermons will deal with this more fully. But Paul reminds the Philippians that they must be united, he says, in one spirit, with one mind. Right? So they, they have, need to have 
posture, a certain kind of ethic or attitude that flows from the gospel. And this posture is toward God, toward self, toward others in the church, and toward the world. It's a posture of humility, patience, forgiveness, repentance, forbearance, grace, love. If you remember Paul's prayer at the beginning of the letter of, of, of the beginning of the letter, he prays that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Then in chapter two, he's going to tell them to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Paul knows that in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, we need not only to know the truth of the gospel, but also to live out the posture of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, are you working to promote unity in the gospel in this church? These days, and in this environment, there are so many things that can pull us in different directions. Sinful things, good things, and even neutral things. How to respond to cultural trends. How to respond to the governor's mandates. Who to vote for. How to educate our children. What would it look like for you, for all of us, to prioritize the purpose of the church over the things that you individually are passionate about, that we are passionate about? What would it look like for us to seek the interest of others and not our own? If we are to live a life worthy of the gospel, we need to have unity in the purpose of the gospel and in the posture of the gospel. There's another thing Paul says that we need in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, and that is confidence. Let's pick up in the middle of verse 27. He says, That I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. When Paul talks about their opponents, he's probably thinking about the Roman authorities opposed to the preaching of the gospel and the establishment of churches. Or perhaps he's thinking about religious groups that were hostile to the message of Christ, such as the the Jews or the Judaizers, that is, those who were within the church but promoting Jewish practices as tests of true Christianity. Or perhaps he had in mind simply unbelieving and hostile families and relatives. Whoever Paul is thinking about, it's clear that believers in Philippi had opponents in that 
as a social and religious minority, they were vulnerable to scorn, abuse, persecution, perhaps even extinction. So this certainly would have caused them to be anxious and fear for their lives. But Paul says that one way to live a life worthy of the gospel is by not being frightened in anything by our opponents. Now, I don't think Paul is saying that Christians will never or ought never experience psychological, physical fear in in the face of opposition or danger. Rather, I think he's saying that Christians should not be controlled by those fears. And that they should not retaliate towards their opponents. How can Christians do that in the face of danger? Well, remember what, what Paul said, those memorable words that Paul gave us in the previous section. He said, for me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul was in prison. Paul was suffering for the cause of Christ. How can Paul say that? Well, he could say that because he knew that in Christ, his salvation was certain. He knew that his sins, all of his sins, were forgiven. He knew that he was justified before God. That he was assured of God's love. He knew that he would rise again, just like Christ did. He knew that whether in life or in death, he belonged to Christ. And so the same was true for the Philippians. And you know what? The same is true for us. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, your salvation is sure. All your sins are forgiven. Before God, you are righteous. God loves you. You will rise again whether in life or in death, Christ is yours. I've been recently um, reading Harry Potter, the first book. I know I'm late to the game. Um, And I have, I don't really know what the storyline is in in the rest of the books, but I'm in the first book, And if you've read the book, which I would assume that that you have, or you're familiar with it, uh, Hagrid picks up um, Harry and takes him to to a place called Gringotts because that's where Harry's family wealth is stored. And it's interesting because Gringotts is this place where, like, everything is safe. There's no way no one can get in, right? Now, please don't tell me that later on someone breaks in 
and steals the stuff. And then also my, my illustration doesn't work. But, but in Christ, Christ is like Gringotts, right? He's got our salvation protected. We belong to Him. And so any earthly danger from our opponents, as scary as it may be, pales in comparison to the comforts and the blessings that are ours because of our union with Christ. And therefore, we can face our opponents with confidence because really, they can't take anything of eternal value from us. Do you really believe that? I really believe that. How would we act differently if we, live, if we really believe that is true? It's interesting what Paul says next in verse 28. He says, This is a clear sign to them, to their opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. I don't think this translation here is, is the best. Uh, the, the ESV kind of gives the impression that our opponents clearly know that they are going to be judged by God and therefore destroyed. Uh, I don't want to go into the details of the Greek, but the, the, the dative is a bit um, is unclear. It's a bit ambiguous. And as we know, not all opponents of the gospel know clearly that they are going to be condemned. In fact, many of them believe the complete opposite. They believe that we are crazy, that we are going to be condemned for being so narrow-minded and exclusive in our belief in Christ. I think what Paul is saying here is that sometimes... When opponents of the gospel see Christians united in their proclamation of the gospel and united in their loving posture towards one another in the world and not being frightened by their opponents, that brings conviction of sin. They start to wonder whether they are in the wrong, whether perhaps this Jesus that Christians talk so much about is real and whether he's really mighty to save. And some of them end up turning from unbelief, from unbelief to faith in Christ. Actually, that's something Jesus said that would happen, and he prayed for that. In John 17, he prayed to the Father that his disciples may all so that the world may believe that he was sent by the Father. And that should be our prayer too. That we are so united in the gospel. That we are so confident in the power of the gospel to save us and to save others. That even our worst enemies are drawn to repentance and faith in Christ.
so we can have confidence in the face of opposition. But Paul says one more thing about having confidence in the gospel. Pick up there in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. As counterintuitive as this may sound, God has granted to his children, to his people, not only faith in Christ, but also sufferings for his sake. When we as Christians experience opposition and suffering, we are tempted to believe that we're doing something wrong or that or we start to question whether or if he's real whether he's with us or for us but paul says that the sufferings we experience for the sake of christ are a sign a sign of our salvation the salvation we've received from god now let, let's be careful here we we need to recognize that as many times as Christians, we are the object of opposition and we undergo suffering because we're jerks and because we bring it on ourselves. But Paul is not talking about that kind of suffering. He's talking about our sufferings for the sake of Christ. Paul says that the sufferings are part of the, the package of salvation. God has given us a gift that it's all blessing, but within those blessings, some hard things, some things are hard to swallow. We get to believe in Christ and we get to suffer for him. This is nothing new. This is something that Jesus himself said. He said that the Christian life would be costly. He said, if, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospels will save it. Paul and Barnabas told the, told the believers in, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 14, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then Paul tells Timothy also in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So brother and sister, I don't like suffering. regardless of whether it's for the, for the sake of Christ or because I'm a jerk. And I'm sure you don't like it either. But in God's providence, he has designed it as part of the benefits that we get 
through union with Christ. Because you know what? When we suffer for Christ, we are drawn closer to him. We get to experience somewhat what he experienced for us. We are conformed to his image. We are given an opportunity to, to honor him and to show his matchless worth. We even get to uh, enjoy fellowship with each other through suffering. As Paul says there in verse 30, he says that the Philippians are engaged in the same conflict that, you saw, that they saw he had and now hear that he still has. We get to fellowship with each other and with all of our brothers and sisters around the world as we suffer for Christ. Sufferings will not be forever. Just as Christ was humiliated and then exalted, we will also experience humiliation, but we will be exalted with him. And therefore, we can be confident that as we experience suffering for, for the sake of Christ, of the salvation that, that God has granted us in the gospel. So this passage calls us to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Some Christians might associate that call with a variety of behaviors. Perhaps, on the one hand, retreating from society to create our own little Christian society. Or boycotting um, unchristian businesses. Or on the other hand, perhaps renewing society, transforming the culture, putting Christians in high positions of power to ensure that the laws of the nation reflect biblical values. And those things, any of those things may be appropriate at times and to a certain degree. But the picture that Paul gives us in this passage is much more, much less Glamorous or grand. According to Paul, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, it looks like something that the common public can do by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It looks a lot like keeping calm and carrying on. We keep calm by having confidence in the gospel in the face of opposition and suffering. Because we know that God has begun a good work in us and that he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And we carry on by seeking unity in the purpose, in the, in the posture of the gospel, so that the message of Christ might go forth. So brothers and sisters, whatever happens, whether things continue to be sweet and calm, or we're attacked. Keep calm and carry on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the salvation that we have in him, for the confidence that we have that our lives are in your hand, whatever happens. Help us, Lord, to be united as a church 
in the proclamation of this precious message of salvation. Help us, Lord, to glorify you and to live a life worthy of the gospel. In Christ we pray. Amen.